Stay Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Be Prepared. And if you haven't already, please do remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast. We've had some really lovely reviews lately and some star ratings. Five stars are always nice. But back to today's show, which is all about women. My guest today is a ninja level quizzer. And we talk in the show about the fact that very little general knowledge comes up about women, particularly women in history. And that's simply because until relatively recently, no one was interested in researching or documenting them. So here goes for the tiniest redress of the balance. The first woman to run the Boston Marathon was warned by doctors that her uterus would fall out. How do I know that? Well, it came up in my first episode of QI. Have I done some QIs? I have, but I don't like to talk about it. The first woman to circumnavigate the globe was the botanist Jean Barre. She disguised herself as a male valet to get on an expedition from 1766 to 69. Elizabeth Blackwell was the first woman in the US to earn the Doctor of Medicine degree, and she was admitted to a medical school in 1847 after the faculty allowed the all-male student body to vote on her admission. They were sure that they would reject her, but the students voted yes as a joke. Well, look who's laughing now. Well, I guess not her because she'll have been dead a while, but you get my drift. And in 2018, a woman in Crimea stole 70,000 rubles from a fortune teller who had predicted that she would come into money soon. Oh, an old lady with technology. Look at me. That's my guest today, Lucy Porter. In 2006, a Norwegian woman turned on her tap and got beer instead of water. Turned out a pub in the same building had accidentally connected a barrel of beer to the building's water line. I mean, that is the opposite of a crappy landlord, isn't it? Deadly Nightshade, aka Belladonna, Beautiful Lady, is so named because its juice was used as an eyedrop in Renaissance Italy to make a woman's pupils dilate seductively. Violet Jessup survived the sinking of the Titanic, the Britannic, and was aboard the third sister ship, the Olympic, when it collided with another boat and nearly sank in 1911. That's got to be the worst date ever. And the woman who did the 1895 novel by Grant Allen suggested women should be free to have children out of wedlock. This shocked so many people that other authors responded with the woman who didn't, the woman who wouldn't, and the man who didn't. Age and gender are irrelevant to my uh, lack of expertise. Lucy Porter is a comedian, quizzer, and TV and radio regular, and co-host of the brilliant Fingers on Buzzers podcast. Lucy and I have in common that she too used to work behind the camera in television before taking to stage and screen herself. In her case, many years ago, and to great acclaim ever since. Lucy and I talked about podcasting, parenting, real jobs, silly jobs, people pleasing, getting fired, stars in their eyes, the 90s, drinks, 
drugs, reality TV, true crime, quizzing, the coughing major, the chase, and house of games. But we started by talking about the Zoom gigs we were both doing during lockdown. I did one um, online Zoom gig where I was the only person who had successfully managed to access the technology. And it was, you know, like when you're comparing and none of the acts have turned up and you've just got to fill, which is bad enough in a live room, but at least you can then say, anyway, so what's your name? What do you do? You know, what's your favourite cheese? And, um, you know, online where they're all just sort of sitting there and it's harder as well to know. It's not like the act can just walk in at the back of the room and wave at you like in a live gig so I really yeah I really earned my money that day because I was sort of looking at people's backgrounds and you know discussing the kind of finer points of, of their mantel pieces and, and where did you get that cushion and what about you in square four where did you get your cushion <laughs> yeah. and, uh... well it's interesting you've both got models of the Buddha are you spiritual people and then of course they can't really answer because the zoom link or whatever it you know is all really eggy so yeah I did. We're here anyway. At the start of lockdown, I thought um, my agent does this night. They used to do this night called Hysterical Women, which was a sort of all female kind of comedy night. And I used to MC it a lot. And it was a really nice one. They quite often would get bookers and stuff along. They'd be using it as a showcase for their acts and other acts. So I used to love doing it. And then we had this sort of genius idea, largely pushed by me. I was like, well, let's do it on Zoom and I'll MC it every time. And, And I was thinking, and then after a while, I was like, fuck, MCing that on zoom was no pleasure and I cannot do this every like I can't do it regularly because I cannot I've burnt through everything I've got about on zoom about zoom it'll all be about you know is your frozen chicken defrosted and what kind of dog (laughs) have you got and it's not funny and it was like there was material that was relevant for such a very specific moment in time and I don't think I've ever experienced this in decades of doing have you not because it's different for you because you've got the stuff to look back on as by way of comparison yeah, so even, th- I mean, there's been really weird, tricky times. Like, obviously, I mean, I go back to when Princess Diana died, Kelly. So, I mean, you know, there's been those times. She was ahead of one of your gigs on the radio. <laughs> She's like, fucking hell. Have another drink, cover. chauffeur. We better cut I was, this mic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's not. Let's not go there. But, uh, yeah, so I, yeah, I don't remember ever having material that was so short-lived, you know. Like, even political stuff, you can normally get, uh, you know it, it, it's people stick around so you can have stuff that's not directly topical but just kind of like zeitgeisty and normally politicians stick around for a couple of years like a bad smell but Sadly. Um, yeah the zoom stuff it's like you just go well no one wants to hear that now now we're out live I don't think really people want to hear that much about the pandemic and about lockdowns and things because it's like oh god well we're out now we don't it's like I always when I first had kids I started doing material about my kids and then someone kind of said you know what actually most people have paid for a babysitter to get away from their children so they don't necessarily want to hear you know all the stuff about kids all night because you know that's that's the reality they're escaping from you maybe just rethink my entire act it's all pandemic and kids now Lucy I'm gonna retire (laughs) it's funny how you get those I found new sort of entry points for my stand-up that were through the pandemic and quite good start you know when you're always trying to find those those that I can get on the stage and I can immediately like get the room and I managed to come up with a couple of really watertight ones through the pandemic and then I was like oh great I'll use these for as long as I can and then about two weeks after the pandemic I was um emceeing at 
Angel at the Bill Murray and Reese James was on later. So he hadn't seen my intro bit. And we were chatting in the break and he was like, oh, it's weird, isn't it? He said, what sort of mood are they in? Do they want, they probably don't want to hear about the pandemic. I said, not really, it's been touched on. He went, yeah, he said, I had someone last week and they were doing stuff about driving gigs. Like anyone gives a fuck about those in the audience. And that had been my... <laughs> so then I was like, and I was just, no one else heard. So no one else. I just was like, yeah. And then I was like, okay, lay that to rest. Don't ever, ever do that bit again. Oh God. But I mean, that happens all the time where somebody says, you know, the one thing I really hate is when comedians do material about, you know, self-scan checkouts or, you know, there are things that kind of quite quickly become hack but of course if you're doing your own unique take on them then it's fine but yeah you do die a bit inside if you hear someone specifically slag off the very thing that you have talked about or are going to talk about it's when you lose your nerve as well isn't it about your I think as long as you're owning it and going on going this is my material I'm backing it it's going to be great then the audience normally goes with but if you get a sort of inkling backstage of I was booked for um, a gaming benefit so I obviously don't know much about gaming I think someone knew my son likes gaming and they made the mistake of like you'll be great and then I just thought, well, I'm just going to do my stuff. And I've written a couple of things about my son playing Call of Duty. And I'm a great booking because I'm another angle on gaming. And the more people went on, the more I was like, no, this is an erroneous booking. And <laughs> by the time I on, I might as well have just said, I'm really sorry I shouldn't be here and just gone. Because yes. that was my whole demeanor. And I didn't land, I didn't sell anything of my act. Because like all the way back to I was like, oh, I wish I had stuff about, you know, gaming. But I don't. Yeah. Oh. So what was I going to do at that? <laughs> And then, well, yeah, you can't completely change your personality and experiences in the space of the 10 minutes backstage. I mean, I've done that where you sit trying to write material. I did one of the worst deaths I've ever had was at a convention for VW owners. And it was this, it was gorgeous. It was a beautiful sunny day in a field and everyone is driving their Beatles and their camper vans and they're all in a great mood. And I decided you know had exactly that crisis of confidence and thought i i better do something about uh about cars or you know talk about uh the film herbie goes bananas and i just went out <laughs> and started doing reference. this ridiculous i know <laughs> and like half of those people are way too young to remember herbie goes bananas and yet absolutely died on my ass because you know i was trying to do what i thought they wanted me to do instead of you know actually the thing that i'd been paid to do but then that can also really pay off can't it like it's taken me eight, eight say ages um I've been going seven years and it's taken me till now to dare to go into a room I think emceeing has got me to the point where I'm more confident to do it but to actually do what all decent comedians do which is own what's going on in the room say something about it start with it and nine times out of ten it does work but sometimes I'm thinking oh it'll be really funny if I mention the chandelier or whatever and you come on and everyone's <laughs> like fucking earlier they're going to be any jokes and you're like, yes. oh, I thought that was a really live lovely reference so <laughs> it can go either way I think but you um you and I have in common well you have in common that we both talk about um age and children on stage which obviously nobody wants to hear about uh but we're still here uh, but the other thing we have in common is that we both worked behind the cameras in telly before we made the switch only you made it much more quickly than I did but you started out well, I couldn't hold down a job I mean that's the <laughs> the truth of it was I would have loved to have stayed in tv production but uh, I was always on the verge of being sacked in fact I was listening to your lovely chat with Angela Barnes and uh, it was so I mean she's so great isn't she and but it, it was like her description of her early life is basically the same as mine so if so should we just play that bit in and could you, you go just have a do cup that of tea? I'll go and have a cup of tea and then everyone <laughs> yeah. can go oh it's just 
It was like that, except yeah. it was me, not her. I also like the fact that so, you made people now listen to a second episode of the podcast. So thank well, you, Well, she Lucy. said that, well, I, I would recommend you listen to all of them. I've had such a lovely catching up on the catalogue. And I, so I was just doing my washing up and you and Justin Morehouse were with me, uh, helping me to scrub off a particularly difficult stain. <laughs> so uh, I, I did appreciate that. There's one thing me and Morehouse are uh, good. I know he, oh, he's a sweetie, isn't he? It is a nice, um, I do quite, I think if you have a sort of, well, your podcast is, is very benevolent too but I think if you I know as you do from our time in telly you can either give someone a benevolent edit or not and I think if you've got a podcast that's meant to make the person who's on it feel quite good and the people listening that's I think in the world we live in that's a good thing to be doing and we can stand well, telly by it. is to me like I think I'm the luckiest girl alive because I live in the era of podcasting and I love doing podcasts I love listening to podcasts I've always loved speech radio this is like my absolute dream because I didn't get on in telly because it all was seemed sort of very frantic and the stakes are high and everything costs a lot of money um whereas goodness knows one thing you can say about podcasts is there's not a lot of money <laughs> sloshing about sometimes I spent 12 pounds on this so <laughs> if the editor's really slow <laughs> I, I bought some biscuits to eat while, I've, uh, while yeah. I chat so uh, so yeah so I didn't get on in telly at all well and I um, yeah, I was always on the verge of being sat, but like Angela Barnes says, I'm such a people pleaser that I, I'd never actually got sacked. But I, it was like, I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship where you're trying to get the other person to end the relationship by being as much of a, an asshole as you can. Yeah, be. 80% of my relationships, <laughs> even with my children. <laughs> yes. Why are they still here? Fire I mean, me. come on. <laughs> yes. So I was, I, I mean, my last boss was a man called Gary Monaghan, and I. Well, to, to the end of my days, I will be so grateful to him because I could not have taken the piss anymore. I was barely there. I would be found asleep under my desk because all I wanted to do was do stand up and I'd already started to kind of putting my feelers out. So I would drive to, I'd leave work in Manchester, drive to Edinburgh, do a gig, finish at, you know, whatever midnight, drive back to Manchester, get back for like five in the morning, go to work, have a lovely sleep all day and then go out the next night to uh you know to ipswich or somewhere and uh, so yeah gary monaghan uh, was a very patient boss and i thank him i remember listening to paul mccaffrey on someone else's podcast but i think we touched on it in my mind when he came on here but when he worked in call centers and he was just always getting fired from call centers because he was gigging all night and he just didn't and and that but he said there were just enough call centers because no one wants to work in a call center it was literally <laughs> like the churn was fine because then you, and by the time you needed to cycle back to the first one you got fired from they'd forgotten you and they needed you back <laughs> so he had a sort of rolling stock of of call center jobs that he was sort of yeah alternating with mainly what he was doing which was sleeping under his desk and driving too far for gigs and stuff well when I finally left telly I did actually go into the world of temping and I think I tempt I, t I said that I um, had legal secretary expertise which I didn't at all but uh, it, you got paid more if you said that and a friend tipped me off and so I went to work at almost every firm of solicitors in Manchester for about a week and I would be brilliant for the first week because I love to show off as we have subsequently <laughs> come to appreciate and uh, and I would go in and I would be like what do you need what do you need yeah hi I'm here yeah woo and look super efficient and then by the time the magic wore off after a week I would just quietly go 
go back to the agency and say, can I go somewhere else now? And that was the way I managed to kind of keep myself in employment in the early days of comedy because, you know, I would basically just put on an act for a week. And luckily with uh, comedy, it is permanent temping and you only have to put on an act for 20 minutes or an hour if you're really giving somebody your best shot. So it's <laughs> yes. like the ultimate. You can fire me from one venue, but you can't fire me from my job. So, And did you, you sort of had the, because um, you studied English at Manchester. Mm. I studied English and drama at Goldsmiths, but I really wanted to go to Manchester, but I messed up my A-levels. I was sort of very um, busy partying and not doing mm. what anyone would, um, would do if they wanted to get their A-levels. So I gradually sort of lowered and lowered my list of expectations and at the time, I mean, Goldsmith was a really good place to go in, but they did it partly on interview. So I managed to get in not on grades, but on on an on interview. And um, and I really wanted to go to Manchester. And then when I left telly, I really wanted to be in TV production, doing exactly what. So when I looked at your backstory, I was like, you literally were the me I wanted to be in the years <laughs> that you, you stole were... <laughs> my life, bitch. What, yeah, what and now you're still the me I want to be. <laughs> so... Oh, I really don't think so. I've only got you on um, here. Well, it's so gonna so... have a fight to the death I, you or me I was, well yeah that's fine there can be only one lady standing at the end exactly. of it you can have my life Kelly uh there's many aspects of it that uh, that really need a lot of work but yeah I think I I really loved going to Manchester and it was because of you know music and I thought I was going to marry Morrissey which in so many Thank ways would have didn't. been a disastrous yeah. match I know I mean imagine looking now back, we the apologies <laughs> you'd have to have a t-shirt saying as my husband but I don't agree with him on many I know, aspects of I would have kept him right you know Do you think I mean, so? or kept him yeah. left I, I could have done so much for that man um but yeah so there was and there was the stone roses I mean in a way I kind of arrived in Manchester at the tail end of the music boom but as it turns out the beginning of the comedy boom so mm. I didn't you know I timed it badly in one sense but amazingly in another because I got to sort of be there when it was Carolina Hearn who I later went to work for on the Mrs Merton show and Steve Coogan, John Thompson, Henry Normal, people like that were uh, they did a new material night at a place called uh, Band on the Wall, a nightclub and I absolutely fell in love with comedy in Manchester and then I went up to Edinburgh to the festival and fell in love with that city and with comedy even further. So from what I thought was going to be my life, being in an indie band, being the kind of British Courtney love. Uh, and you do all, look very similar. I, you know, I, People I must say like, that to you all the time. <laughs> we've both lived a very rich and colourful life. Um, and yeah, I, I genuinely thought I was going to be some sort of girl riot, riot girl, uh, British superhero but actually turns out comedy was my path so I was sort of pleased to have found that and it's funny to um did you never think I don't know whether to be envious or not envious I had Sean Keaveney uh on for an interview uh, a couple of days ago and he it sounds like I'm just plugging everyone I've ever had or I'm gonna have well he's an adorable I love him I so know. much his voice is like a warm bath I know it's so I, the interview went on for seven and a half hours um, oh. we're only going to use four minutes can uh, I have but, the rushes of it though because I would like to listen to the whole thing yeah, absolutely that is your payment <laughs> uh but he was saying in a not dissimilar way to 
to you um that so he ended up and he sort of well the other way around really so he ended up getting into radio because a mate of it he was writing radio ads and a mate of his said oh I'm doing this new thing on XFM do you want to do like the night shift with me and then he said his sort of incapacity to think ahead and plan and know what the fuck was going on meant that he stayed doing it for ages and he said whereas if he'd been had a bit more executive function he'd have gone what am I doing this for like it's not paying me much where am I going why am I living in London I don't like it all I want to do is go back home and then he said there was something about his sort of the chaos that led, led him to stay in it that then ended yes. up making it his career um which is the sort of opposite so it's a, I, don't, I don't know why I'm seeing a similarity between you oh and no Sean that Keefe. resonates 100 yeah. percent absolutely because yeah I think I I mean any major move that I've made in my life has been either out of desperation or sort of forced on me by someone else really so I am very poor at uh yeah I mean organizing my life or having any kind of plan there's no there's no list of like a five-year plan with me so it's all been kind of happenstance and I mean I just was really lucky actually because I got a job in TV at Granada when it was this how did you get that job because I wanted that job how did you I literally get that job absolutely favoritism nepotism who you know well I, you that's know, what I was thinking at the time was why I wasn't getting those jobs I'm yeah that you've confirmed that was the case the whole of telly is like that basically I had wheedled my way into Carolina Hearn's affections uh, by you know being a super fan of stand-up and uh, and I just knew loads of comedians and so I got into that job and then that led me into other I mean I did some awful things at Granada TV in Manchester in the 90s it was an, it was because you had the big prestige things like stars in their eyes which I used to help out with occasionally and like my proudest moment was I once stopped a fight between not Gary Newman and not Gary Barlow I was like I shall step into this and and that was really weird that was like a cult uh, but it was fascinating because it was like the biggest show on telly at the time and then there was you've been framed so one of the jobs you always had to do was sit and watch the hours and hours of tedious footage that people had sent in you know which you it sort of was one of the first things that made me realize that not everybody understands what comedy is yes because people would send in either incredibly faked clips, which I was like, well, fair enough, you're trying to get 250 quid, good on you, or just the boring video of their holiday, I guess in the hope that something funny was in there, or they would say, oh, there's a hilarious clip of Auntie Marge falling the off the sun lounger or something, yeah. and then she, she, she'd sort of, she didn't fall off the sun lounger, she got up, you know, it was all that sort of stuff. So anyway, so that was uh, a sort of pretty crappy aspect of the job but then they started a thing called Granada Men and Motors I remember all of this yeah yes and it was B Sky B again this is for the older listeners might remember the the square aerial the square aerial uh that uh, I think B Sky B had anyway it was the new technology and what it meant was making really really cheap telly really quickly and that was the absolute most fun thing so there were programs like there was a pop quiz called Elvis has left the building with Noddy Holder yes I remember all of these because I was by then I was working in telly yeah so I remember yeah. all of this yeah and it was and that I sort of got to work on those things and a football quiz I've got no interest in football uh but Brendan Coogan lovely Brendan Coogan Steve's, Steve's brother, brother. And, uh, brilliant presenter who yeah who got sacked from Top Gear for drink driving after about a day which is one of the still to this day one of the saddest things 
I've ever come across that he got this dream job and then he he got sacked because the day after he'd had a drink he moved his car and anyway um especially when you uh, look at what hasn't got people sacked from that subsequently oh my god in television in the 90s I mean it I've been listening to a brilliant podcast about reality TV in the nineties. Um, what's the podcast? Do you know, what? I will, I will have a look at my. Because you know, I used to you. work. I worked in reality TV in the nineties. So, Did you? Well, yeah. you might know. This is about a Sky show. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. But it really reminded me of why I hated working in television so much. I wrote um, an article about why, uh, a sort of for the FT about reality TV and the sort of really serious side of people killing themselves after being in the shows. But I did also say, you know, for clarity, reality TV has paid for the house I live in, um, and that <laughs> yes. and that does, and, and I have got a sort of moral dilemma. And people, understandably, were like, "Well, fuck you." But I thought yes. I can't pretend I haven't. You know, I have also dined out on that industry. You know, that's that is what I made a living out of for quite some. Well, years. and you do think you look back and it we have all done questionable things and working in television in the 90s i mean i some of my guiltiest moments some of the things that when i wake up at four in the morning and i feel terrible about it is things like the way contestants were treated on television shows so we used to do quiz shows and you know and it came from a culture above which was like you know these are just human cattle oh god you know the bloody audience oh they're all in the way and i you know and as a little junior researcher you kind of just get on with doing what you're paid to do but I like to think now and I think the advent of social media is great for this that you probably wouldn't like you would make a bit of a stand or you'd at least anonymously say something although Jeremy the- Kyle that all, when that all came out there was only what two three years ago and now everyone's come out of the woodwork saying you just didn't dare say anything but the way that that and that was recent that was all happening yeah well I think I mean I got out of it partly because I just the 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 way that if you were sort of in front of the camera talent you were treated as a god and if you were behind the camera you were treated like crap I just thought there's something has got to give here I tell you what why don't I try being the person in front of the camera so <laughs> instead of changing things I just decided you to, went for the better side yeah, yeah just go where the all the analogies uh, the I can think of are too unsound for me to say and not have to edit out Namaste, motherfuckers. I think, again, not naming names, but some of the people that used to run the production companies as well. So there were certain figures that were sort of mm. godlike and you and they were almost treated as if they were on screen talent, but nobody outside of the industry knew who they were. And they'd be getting their tables at the Ivy every day. And they, and they were just figures who had something to do with the big show or the big talent. And they were almost treated in that sort of deified way. Oh my I, God, I worked, legendary ones. Yeah, yeah. and I, I won't, anyone who looks it up will know who I'm talking about. But I worked for a bit um, at a production company, which I ended up running for a bit. And then we sold it to, um, to ITV. So now everyone will definitely know who it was but it was like before it before we took it over and and you know had a sort of fresh broom and they did you know catchphrase 15 to 1 those kind of shows um but it was like abfab like the way the people who the two people who ran it were like and I remember there was um I was given an office like a sort of corner office and then people were really pissy that I'd got given a corner office and I was like I don't want a corner office you can all move your desks in here I don't give a shit and then um and then they uh, there was a filing cabinet which I needed for my filing (laughs) because it was in the days before everything was electronic and I couldn't 
unlock it. And I was like, look, can I either get a new filing cabinet or someone can just give me a key to that? And in the end, someone said, oh, they're not going to give you the key to that because it's full of, um, it was full of uh, champagne. So the whole thing was just <laughs> full of Laurent Perrier and they were, no one was going to let me, <laughs> let me have the key. And that would just get used, you know, drunk by the people there. And I do also remember not that company. I was telling my daughter about this, who's having a very party, partying time in Madrid. Um, if my mum and dad are listening, don't ask too many questions about what that means. But... <laughs> That she was saying to me, oh, did you, you know, what did you do drugs wise? And, you know, and I was like, well, most things. And, and then I said, I remember there was one job I had in the 90s. And if you stayed on for overtime, you know, when they used to pass an envelope round and you would have to sort of tick if you'd read the memo or sign the birthday card or whatever it was, there was sort of yeah, those yeah. envelopes that would make their way round. And they used to pass an envelope round with Coke in it. If you weren't late, you got a line of Coke. And that was, that was actually, I mean, it wasn't part of your declarable benefits, but it was definitely <laughs> a, a benefit. And it was like, God, can you imagine now a company literally going, right, well, those people are here late. We'll, oh, we'll stop God. bugging the class A's yes. round, have some on us. Well, I got once sort of asked to, find some drugs for some talent and I had not the first clue I mean you know I think they thought oh well you're in your 20s you live in Manchester you've probably got connections and you're I had Courtney to... love you'll know I know well I did I mean I you know I gave that impression <laughs> of being a, a sort of absolute demon for the drugs but uh I yeah and I had to kind of ask around everyone I knew and then try and make it and it, luckily in the end it came to nothing because they realized that I was as ineffective at that as I was at every other aspect of my job but, even fell asleep but had, on the job trying to get some coke <laughs> there was one job in which was not at Granada I should point that out but a different production company and um yeah the one of the senior bosses had kind of we'd all been staying up late and you know working very hard and he obviously been relying on stimulant help and he came out of his office with like his nose bleeding like coke all over the place having a sort of weird psychotic episode screaming at everyone and it you know somebody took him off and calmed him down and then nothing else was ever said about that again and to me I was like that it, it, that's like a rock bottom moment that is like in someone's autobiography where they say I knew I needed help because you know I did this terrible thing but he just came back to work the next day and carried on taking coke as, as if nothing had happened and, then, and also the, drinking in the day like we used to drink at lunchtime like really often I mean I remember once just not going back to work because I got so pissed and I'd met someone who I quite liked and I just didn't come back and I'm like can you imagine you're probably now wondering how I ever got to the heady heights of boardrooms uh, these were in the early days but yeah I remember you know just to sort of and it was it was a nine when you hear all the stuff that comes out about the 90s you just think yeah I was in that world and it's doesn't nothing would really surprise me that would come out and we did no. all and we did all slightly turn a blind eye not to the sort of moral compass side of even what we were doing in terms of contestants but also when you look at all the kind of me too stuff that was just going on all around it was it was just kind of there in, in my experience yeah I mean I I think we did uh make a stand when the producer of one show decided to take all the men who'd worked on a show to a strip bar in Manchester. And the, the women were like, well, yeah, what? And that was one of the sort of times that I remember actually kind of going, this isn't, no, this isn't on. And then the head of the department did have to say, yeah, you, you can't really do that. <laughs> but this producer had kind of just not thought that would be a problem at all. So I yeah, there that... is a load of... 
and twice on business trips I had people I ended up with sort of all men and twice everyone went to a strip club and I was the only woman there and no one it didn't occur to anybody that I wouldn't want to go couldn't go was stuck in the arse end of whatever city we were in that I didn't know and had to then either go to a strip club or find my way back to the hotel on my own and that happened twice so yeah the sort of the strip club fun bants did you find the reality tv podcast by the way yes it is called so uh, the podcast is Harsh Reality, the story of Mir- the, Harsh Reality, the story of Miriam Rivera, and it's. Uh, I, I had no idea; I'd forgotten the uh, show. I don't think I was ever aware of it, but there was a show that uh, called "There's Something About Miriam." Oh yes, and this is about the. I mean, it's ju- it's a really hard listen because it's awful, but it. I think it's quite good because um, it. it it sort of shows how culturally you can all turn a blind eye to something or, you know, everybody gets wrapped up in what they need to do for their job, how they need to get by. Um, I haven't finished it yet, so I don't know what's coming, but I know I don't think it's, it's not going to be good. No, exactly. So, yeah, I, I always try and sort of alternate my podcast where I have one that's quite happy and one that's really sort of terrifying I'm the same yeah I'm the same did you um teacher's pet have you have you done that oh one? yes yeah that was oh, a... I've done all of those and I absolutely hate myself for it again I think this will be something we will look back at this era oh yeah true crime go why were we so obsessed with making ourselves terrified and miserable because also some of the um the adverts now so in fact I think it's on that very podcast there was an advert for I think it's called I met my murderer on the internet and the ad for it is so upbeat and it's like hey we're all dating on the internet now but it turns horribly wrong some of us are dead yes and it's like this isn't like oh look at this entertainment it's we've kind of lost sight I think of the fact that these are actual true horrific terrible stories and sometimes I do think god you know and I'm not judging anyone else I'm saying from my point of view I sort of wonder if I'm sacrificing a bit of my humanity for the sake of cheap thrills and I love a great story but I sort of think I would rather have it filtered through fiction sometimes than feel like I'm listening to bereaved relatives who might or might not look back on it and regret having taken part and I just think we're so everybody thinks they're processing everything in real time now and actually I think with really traumatic and awful things sometimes you need to give yourself a bit of time and distance and think do I want to talk about that like even with stand-up I find this that oh something terrible will happen of course everybody says oh but it'll be great for material and you go yeah great I'll just talk about that on stage and that is often not the most helpful thing you can do for your mental health or the you know the the people around you so I've learned to be a bit more careful about that in recent years well they've now discovered that coming out people who've suffered you know terrible traumas they used to do lots of talking therapy straight away um and it now is found that that anchors it and at a period in the future absolutely talking therapy is appropriate but in the immediate aftermath it's sort of physical kind of interruptions and all the kind of PTSD 
treatments are much more sort of body and tapping and things that get that tackle it on a level that's unconscious and don't just bed it in on your conscious level but also I think with those contributors on there and here we are saying we love a we love a true crime podcast but are people awful for listening to them <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but we do um but there's something about also if you think about neuroplasticity now that we know that and we know that that account that someone will tell really sort of passionately and then how that will change over time not because they're necessarily lying but because you just believe then you've told the next version and and it's like six degrees of separation from the original one and Mm. and and it's not deliberate but you might well have started to really believe the thing that you said 150 times and then look back on that account you gave on a podcast and go my god I wish I'd never said that it's not what I even think happened I know well I say I love podcasts but actually I'm always really wary the thing that I loved about stand-up and still love is is how ephemeral it is and you say stuff and it's gone and if and there's loads of stuff that I look back on now and I think god that routine was really not on it was you know there were attitudes that I had or things that I said that I don't think I would say now and that's not hypocrisy that is just changing and you're a different person and society is different and morals and values change and you kind of change with them and so you know I think now that everything is recorded and everything is podcasted you a there's a danger that you will look back and go oh my god why did I say that but also I do worry all of the sort of self-help stuff um I mean I would never want anyone to take any advice from me Uh, I don't want that responsibility and because I do think, especially comedians, because we are, we can be so plausible and so persuasive and, that you know, people might actually end up thinking, oh, well, that comedian on that podcast. And some comedians set themselves up as sort of, you know, proper kind of uh, oracles of wisdom. But I, yeah, I definitely, I would like to say to your listeners, please do not <laughs> take any life advice from me. I am the worst person because... I do I'm not even going to ask you the last question I ask everyone then because you've already said I'm incompetent. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I get, I absolutely love the podcast and I love other people's sort of certainty, but for myself, I'm always second guessing how I'm going to feel in the future. And I have said, you know, I mean, I remember I did a show where I said I was never going to have kids and I was never going to get married. In fact, well, I did, you did, I did a whole show. You had to rewrite your show. What was your, it was your, because you got married in 2009. Yeah. At, at the time when your show had been about, I'm never going to get married. Oh, well, God, absolutely. And I was like, why would <laughs> well anyone ever you. get married? It's a sort of <laughs> patriarchal trap. And there's no, I, and I did this whole thing about how awful wedding rings are. I mean, absolutely couldn't have made myself look more like a prize dickhead if I had tried because during that show I got together with my now husband and then I was like oh god I've got to you know you know how hard it is when you've written some material you really like to let go of it just because it no longer fits the truth but then I did and then we split up so then I kind of went back to being bitter for a while and then we got back together so that show was like this terrible Frankenstein's monster of sort of so many different attitudes and feelings and thoughts and this is what I mean about if if you're talking about how you feel in the moment I think it can be brilliant and really connect with an audience because it's so obviously raw and true and real but it can also really screw you up because I mean there was honestly a part of me going maybe I should just stay split up from him because I like the way the show is now so if I get back together with him I'll have to change it 
and uh, so yeah I very nearly didn't get married because uh, I was too lazy to write some new jokes well it isn't even too the bit that's really hard to explain to people who don't do it um, sometimes is that I mean I've definitely had it when I've certainly the first two or three years of doing this and because I had the kids still at home and I still had a big day job I didn't really have the time for a relationship and I would meet I did meet a couple of really nice people at that point and I do remember thinking particularly about one of them who I did really like and I thought right if someone put a gun to your head and I said right you've got to choose him or stand up what's it going to be and I didn't even have to, th- I was like, of course it's going to be stand-up. And it totally, like, there was no question that if there was going to be any sort of extracurricular fun in my life, it, it stand-up <laughs> came first. And um, I think maybe I've now got to the point where I realise, well, you perhaps don't need to choose. Perhaps you can have both. Yeah, but yeah, it is yeah. also, I mean, I've only just aged my kids up to being in their 20s. Like for ages, <laughs> it's like my 16-year-old. And then my daughter heard me do it when she was working at the comedy cafe in Amsterdam. And I came off and she was like, I guess I'm still 16 then, am I? And then, and then I was like, oh yeah, now all the people at the comedy cafe know that's really old material so I need to just so I've aged them up and I pretended it was because I didn't want people to know how old I was until I reveal it so I pretended I don't want the time ancient at quite near the start and then I was like that's just bullshit say it whenever you want and however you want like what are you talking about so it was actually because I liked the jokes yeah (laughs) well and I mean it is hard to know how much you really want to give of yourself and how much truth you want to put out there and whether like you know I, I suppose I really I am much less trusting now of anything people say and I think it's quite good because I'm not naturally a very cynical person but working with stand-ups and people in entertainment has made me aware of how much people like we I was doing um I organized a benefit gig recently and we had a load of people on comedians and actors and stuff and there was um a guy on and my friend who I was organizing it with uh, she said oh we're getting in um you know uh, stuff for the acts food and drink and um, what well, we I know he doesn't drink uh and I was like where did you hear that and she said oh well he he said it in an interview that I read he said that he doesn't drink you know he's absolutely turned a new leaf and he's all about his chakras now all of that and then of course he turns up and proceeds to hit the bar like Courtney Love (laughs) it was me and him being the you know the last one standing in a 90s style at the end of the night but you know and often I think you or you say something and it is your truth at the time and then you know yes you might change circumstances change and then someone will come up to you and I've had this as well years later where someone came up and said oh uh you know you said something that really resonated with me and actually it sort of changed my changed my whole outlook uh, on life and I've had to sort of quietly sort of go well I don't believe that anymore but uh <laughs> I'm but glad it, you're a vegan yeah exactly and I'm <laughs> glad that you're you've carried on with that path but yeah it's Sometimes I think you, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I quite like the fact that most of the things I've said have been lost in the mists of time and drunken comedy nights. And I get very sort of nervous about committing anything to, you know, whatever. I was going to say print or vinyl or whatever. Well, that is the nervous thing about, I mean, the good thing about podcasting is that there are so bloody many of them for anyone to bother <laughs> to sift through to go, do you remember that time that Lucy and Callie made a joke about Princess Diana that was unacceptable? Like someone would have to have so much spare time on their hands that I think we're probably fairly safe. But I am always really aware, I'm actually a bit too aware of it on stage. I think having spent 20 odd years speaking on corporate stages, so I was very accomplished as a speaker, but I wasn't a stand-up. And I think I, it took me so long to just bloody 
bloody loosen up. I mean, it isn't a bloody presentation. You don't sort of signpost where you're going and make it a smooth ride. Just that you're just meant to make them laugh. <laughs> That's that all you got to That must be do. really useful, though, because I think I've always come at it with absolutely no idea about structuring anything or having a mess or which you know in some ways has been useful because I just go but actually I think I am having to learn what you had already learned about you know being a little bit sensitive to where you're going and letting your audience know where you're going to take them I think that's actually a really good thing to do and I've only just started doing corporate stuff and it's yeah so I'm kind of learning I guess the other way around to you well if you can write me some jokes I'll help you with all the structure <laughs> vision and empowerment messages you like but I, I think there is something there about that glossy I think that's why I'm seeing works for me because I'm I feel like you've got that you're sort of meant to have that slight authority and like everybody like think you're funny but I won't fuck around with her because she is driving the train and and I want to be on the train sort of feeling and then sometimes I think when you're meant to just go in and fuck about which I know you're not doing I know I know we have we have written it dear listener but it is it's it's a sort of unlearning of things for me and I still do find that really hard I sometimes think god why you're even making stand up like some bleeding like board level project like don't worry about it just go just go and have a laugh it's that's what you're kind of meant to be doing there is one podcast that I should mention while we keep recommending everyone else's podcast and it's a way of also raising uh, your podcast so your um your fingers on buzzers podcast buzzers even fingers on buzzers that sounded like a 1990 screen room Uh, fingers on buzzes that was a show on men and motors i think actually it was um uh, yeah so fingers on buzzers do you remember that one with what was the one with janet street porter live tv do you remember that yes oh my god i mean that was just weird topless news the news bunny that was part of that as well and what was the topless 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 dance which was actually very I mixed up the bunny done. and the darts which is easily done <laughs> so yeah that, I mean that, the news bunny may have been bottomless we didn't always see uh, the bottom half of the news bunny who knows what, what was going on under there but not fingers on buzzers but fingers on buzzers your podcast your quizzing podcast um but one of the things uh, before we talk about that podcast which I love and I'm in awe of the fact that you're such a quizzer when I was going on um, House of Games recently uh, uh, as you know I sent you a message going you know what what do I do I'm shit at quizzing you were like just have fun and I wish I could do it again and I was like well I'm a moron I can't just have fun because I'm not a quizzer um but yeah I think I was beyond help really but um but in terms of the yeah the idea the behind the scenes of the quiz thing there is a uh, podcast that Matt Ford does with Alice Levine called British Scandals have you listened to it have you listened to the millionaire the coughing millionaire one no but I shall oh that is so good if you worked in telly I mean it's good if you didn't work in telly but you will everything about it and the characters in it and the um whatever he was called Paul uh, the guy that created it, Paul Smith, who created Millionaire, who ran Celador. You'll love it on both levels, but it's a right rollicking good listen and also behind the scenes of the quizzers and the way that whole community of people, how they were all trying to get onto the show and how they had yeah. a sort of a consortium of people who would... I mean, I know you probably know all this from your podcast, but it's a brilliant behind the scenes of a massive juggernaut of a quiz show, Scandal Unveiling. It's very good. Well, the um, there was a brilliant ITV drama about it. As yes, well, I remember. And a stage the... show as well. Well, oh yes, do you know what? Yeah. I've never got to see the stage yeah, show, but I absolutely love too. that story because obviously it taps into all my favourite things, true crime, quizzing and feelings of regret and shame. So it's got everything that I enjoy. And yeah. 
the um, was he a major for anyone who doesn't know a coughing the coughing major the coughing yes. major yes yeah. so he was a major who protect who who got who arguably did or did not win by being cued to the right answers by coughs strategically placed in the audience um, and people are still the jury is still out aren't they as to whether that actually happened or it didn't um, I know people tend to think it did but when you listen to the podcast you're like huh did it again this is what i love about podcasts is because if you you know shine enough light on something and turn it in enough different angles you could always find some element of doubt some chink of light that nobody else is exactly and they do a brilliant one about the canoe that that canoeing couple which i know is now also a drama on itv or wherever it is but they their canoeing one is also very very good (laughs) it's very i just can't recommend it highly enough um but that was so i was just thinking when i was listening to some episodes of fingers on on bosoms uh that it was that's the sort of story so you're so tell people what that's about then that that podcast it's been going for four years now yeah, I mean, on and off. So it's me and Jenny Ryan, who is the vixen on the chase yes. and a wonderful human being. And we did the celebrity chase because I basically would do any quiz that anybody asked. I love quizzing and the chase is one of my absolute favourites. So it was a thrill to be on that. And I, in the green room, got talking to Jenny, who was a new chaser at the time. And we hit it off and we said, shall we do a podcast? And then a few years later, we actually got round to it because our lovely producer, Amanda Redman, the great unsung heroes of podcasting uh, are the producers. I know, that is a... Listen to all this crap that we just... We're sorry, Mike Cookie, I'm sorry. I know, I I mean, you know, they have to listen to it a number of times. Uh, And Amanda basically got us in a room and made us do a podcast. And it is one of the most fun things that I do. I love every aspect of my job. I'm very lucky, but particularly getting to talk to my early heroes of quiz, like uh, Henry Kelly from Going Mm. for Gold, Les Dennis talking about family fortunes, up to the present day, Richard Osman we had on talking about House of Games, which you see, I thought you did very well on House of Games because you were on with Justin Morehouse. Yes. So, because I was on with two... Two amazing quizzes in Neil Delamere, comedian, yeah, and Mark good Billingham. Good mate of mine. Yeah, lovely Mark, Neil Delamere and lovely Mark Billingham, who uh, is an ex-comedian turned incredibly successful crime And on writer. one of the other episodes of Namaste, motherfuckers, listeners. Yes, yes. do listen to the back yeah. catalogue, please do. Um, and then we had an AJ Adudu, who was absolutely glorious had no interest in the quiz whatsoever but was just a good classic oh my god and amazing and actually proves what that show is about is not kind of being the best quizzer and you know wanting to win it is about having fun and enjoying yourself as well and uh it was it was tremendous fun but i didn't win and i mean i was absolutely gutted because i am incredibly competitive and who did win that that one's gone out we can't say what happened in mine and justin's because this will probably go out before that goes out but what who won yours uh neil delamere clinched it it was i have to say it was quite a good tense week because mark billingham won the first one i won so he won monday i won tuesday wednesday and thursday but Neil had been like the silent assassin yeah, sitting in second place the whole classic. week. Yeah. And he and I have quizzed with him before and since. And he is, I mean, his brain is incredible. He is and a he panel does... show ninja for starts. I've never seen someone do panel shows quite like Neil does. It's because he does the blame game and it's on every five minutes. So they they get very honed in a way you can't if you're on yeah. a... Well, yeah, for yeah. our listeners outside yeah. Northern Ireland, the blame game is... Uh, Such a good show. It's amazing, but it's terrifying going in as someone not from Northern Ireland. My dad was Northern Irish, so I kind of felt, oh, well, I know a bit about Northern Irish politics. And 
no no I don't it turns out because I just sat there the first time like as if I was being hit repeatedly by traffic just going I don't understand anything anyone's talking I've about I've never done more research than I did to go on the blame game yes. I've literally did more for that than any QI anything that yes. I've ever done I was just like full-on prepping for that so because one one of the things I did realize doing it because yeah Justin is an incredible quizzer and I didn't know that or in fact I asked Neil Delamere when I heard Justin was on with me um I said do you know if he's a good quizzer and he said well all I know is he says he always crashes out on the first round of um of pointless celebrities <laughs> so I was like oh that sounds really promising great and then when we did that they do a little tiny this isn't spoiling anything for people who watch it but they do that little tiny one question before you go on don't they like just to make sure you know how to press the buzzer and what the yeah. gameplay is and on that one I was like because I am quick the way if I doesn't rely on having any knowledge I can be quite quick of brain but I've just got no back I've got no, I'm ignorant I'm a quick ignoramus so I was like that'll be fun and then I was like oh shit he's got knowledge and he's really quick so then I was like what's left for me so yeah he just he just gave me a big run around but we won't say he what psyched happened. you out is what he did you know that's the that's the problem isn't it is that you get he that. did slightly do that yeah and also I sort of said um when we were going on for the second show and I said oh you know I said I know it's some um, like with Angela Barnes when she did it. I remember her at a certain point thinking well shall I keep winning everything or shall I let other people have a chance so I don't look like a dick he was like well I'm just going to keep winning and I was like like a fuck. <laughs> oh you've got to, I mean you know Angela is amazing that's still to me you know I have friends who are into sport and to me it's like watching Serena Williams you know that it, watching Angela on House of Games is just it's a masterclass it's a thing it's of beauty yeah yeah so yeah I think you can have your sport I've got Angela Barnes on House of Games I know I know and I don't I, I absolutely know for sure if a man did what Angela was capable of doing on House of Games they would be seen as heroic and um, it's ridiculous that Angela had any back lash for being absolutely yeah. amazing just one of the things that we always talk about on the podcast is how you know that there are certain spheres of entertainment that have taken longer to catch up to allowing women in and you know people of color and all of that and it's quizzing is is getting there but it, it's kind of difficult because the culture of asking about famous men it's really difficult because people only know about famous men because if you say you know name female painters or female composers people have a much harder time and it, it is a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy oh, I hadn't thought of that. So because in terms of the trivia there is just way less about women yeah, and also the thing that uh, they never had female game show hosts or quiz show hosts because uh, they the, the feeling was that the audience needed to believe that the host would know the answers to the questions and they didn't think a woman would be knowledgeable enough to, to know stuff so they couldn't host game shows. So it is, when you look into the sort of history of quizzing, as we do on our podcast, uh, it, it's so interesting to see how the the sort of trivia world has kind of reinforced the fact that we only know about male achievements because that's if you if it's anything people know about that's what you quiz them about and then that's all they know about you know and, and so on it goes. goes they should i remember when we used to sell um some of the f quiz formats because we've specialized in game shows and quizzes and it's ironic that i'm such a non-quizzer um <laughs> so i also worked in children's television for years and i hate children's animation but anyway apart from that i've had an ideal career but we used to license um we had a show that was called um uh, uh, i should know what it was called chance in a lifetime i think it was called and it was basically very like millionaire but we got it quick to market and it actually around the world was head-to-head -head with millionaire everywhere some markets chance was big some millionaire was big 
and it was on the back of that show that we sold our company to ITV but that show would get adapted so you'd sell the format and it would get adapted everywhere in the world and, and a show that was already fairly pedestrian and had a male host they'd then put like remember the Italian version on Rai Uno and we got there and they had like a semi-naked woman in a glass tank under the desk and I was like that is completely not and they were like yeah we've got to make it prime time I was like you didn't have a you know literally a sort of abused semi-naked woman in a bloody it's, it's, it's a show about general knowledge so we would find that what was already quite kind of old school got even got even more retrograde sometimes so yes those are there, there are stories I could tell you Lucy I remember and, watching Italian telly on holiday as a teenager and thinking this is actual pornography it's incredible how yeah. you know saucy they are very, very saucy, um, like Macron. Maybe that is what quizzing needs. I mean, <laughs> maybe actually we should introduce, I mean, equal opportunity, just every, yeah. like naked attraction, but they have to answer quiz questions. <laughs> then I don't know which out of me and Justin Morehouse would have won, but it would have been a very close run thing as we are both of an age. Um, it would have distracted from me not knowing where any African countries were, but so that would have been good. Um, I want. I would love to talk to you all day, but I can't keep you from what is probably um, a life of, are your children at school today? I'm oh, well, I actually have a child off sick from school today, so I see. Uh, I had been very neglectful. Yeah. Well, how old is the child that you're neglecting? Just to be clear, that anyone listening, it's not like a two-year-old on its no, own. No, 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 no. There's there's primary school age, so the chances of them discovering, you know, medicines or bleach are fairly limited. I'd say quite so. high by then. But anyway, I like your optimism. Maybe they so. found my drugs. They found my nineties <laughs> exactly. TV drugs, and uh, they're having a whale of a time. But, uh, yes, I shall go and mop a fevered brow in a second. Well, in fact, I know I can actually see from here that uh, Ribena is being drunk the, the universal medicine oh that's good no Lucozade these days it's not as good for the teeth is it just a bit of Ribena Namaste motherfuckers what would you pick as your Namaste motherfucking life changing moment well um Oh, do you know, I, I had a proper think about this. Do you edit this out, by the way, because we don't need to see the working, but... Uh... Hello, podcast penance. It's producer Mike here with a message for Lucy. Lucy, we actually like watching the sausage being made, so I'm keeping it in. Uh, oh, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because, okay, I, I suppose most of my really profound revelations have come on the back of terrible failures. So I probably will have to talk about a terrible death. I think probably um, going to Florida, going to Miami in 2009 to take part in an American TV show called Last Comic Standing. I know that show, yeah. That probably had a more profound effect on me than anything else because it was such a horrific experience that um so i'd been over to america a few times for work so i'd done some gigs in new york in the early 2000s and had a great time and then i'd done a hbo comedy festival in las vegas and i sort of i'd never really thought about oh maybe i could go and work in america um because i'm as i say i'm just a mess and a disaster and everything that happens to me happens by accident so i got back from doing hbo comedy festival and i said to my agent i was like oh i got a card from someone from something called the william morris agency and she was like that they're, they're like a big deal what did you say and i was like oh i don't i don't know really i was a bit drunk and uh, so i'd kind of failed to crack america a couple of times and then i went over to do last comic standing and they had 50 comedians from the uk and europe 
and they'd flown everybody over. I actually joined late because I was on holiday with my then boyfriend, um, who I'd just written the show saying I was never going to get married. Then I'd met him. We went on holiday to Florida. And so I went and met everyone. And it was... There was 50 British comedians and an American TV production team. And I kind of realised that if I don't like television in the UK, I'm really not going to like it in America because they got us all there and they they sort of expected us to act like Americans, I think, and be very excited and grateful. And we were all really ungrateful and really miserable. Like they had Fern Cotton, lovely Fern Cotton here. I think it's a brilliant broadcaster, but they got her at the airport to meet everyone. And they dressed her as a milkmaid for reasons that really, I'm sure they didn't even fully understand. Like this is a British thing. And uh, so everybody, you know, gets off the plane and she's there and everyone's like oh god oh. and the the american crew were like but it's it's the big british tv star you know are you are you excited and everyone was like well no you know we could probably meet her anywhere in her house and yes you know so it and from then on it just got worse and worse and uh i you had to go in and do a little audition for the producers and I've never died so hard because I just was like, I hate everything about this experience. You had to go into a little video booth and talk about how great it was to be there and how much you wanted to win and how much better you were than everybody else. Right, the and apprentice for comedians. Oh God, it was so horrible. And I did think, it just made me realise what you need to do to succeed in America is so much more than you need to do over here. You need to have a completely different attitude. And I have got friends who have succeeded over there. In fact, from that show, Matt Kirshen, um, Jim Tavare, I think, did well. Gina Yashray did another show in that season and did brilliantly and is now super successful over there. But you kind of, you really need to want it and you really need to be prepared to work for it. And I also, I think I thought, actually, do you know what? I think I'd quite like to stay in England and get married and do that, have that as part of my life. And so it is... You know, it's one of those great sort of what could have been moments where you think, God, if I'd really smashed that and I'd kind of really pushed it, maybe I could have been a huge international star. But Will Smith could have been punching you a couple of weeks ago (laughs) if you'd played this differently. What a dream. What a dream that would have been. Olivia Coleman. It could have been, you know, it would have had to be like for likes. So it would have been Olivia That's Coleman true, punching yeah. me in the face, basically. <laughs> and that, I have to say, would be uh, would be something I would stay around to watch. Well, if you and me are going to fight to the death, then we'll get <laughs> Olivia Coleman involved as well. But so I don't know really. That is this sort of Namaste moment in in that I sometimes think knowing what you don't want is kind of as useful as going for what you you know just pursuing every opportunity what you say no to is hugely determining i think of what you and you have to sort of say no to things don't you you haven't got time to do the other things look at me with my huge words of wisdom uh and again disclaimer you know do go for it i'm not saying don't go for it what's your favorite joke oh um i loved barry crier as we all did Mm. And Barry Cryer once told me a joke that if ever I'm asked, you know, sometimes there's a little warm up for microphone levels on panel shows and things, they say, what's your favourite joke? And, you know, I I would never presume to have anything better than Barry Cryer could give. So uh, the joke was uh, a woman's walking a dog in a graveyard 
and she sees a man squatting down behind one of the gravestones uh, and she calls out morning and he says no just doing a shit it's a sweet little joke it's got a swear word in it uh you know which always good if you're doing a radio four show and you use a swear word everyone goes yeah you're in then aren't you if you were to give one bit of life advice to anybody listening what would well, it I suppose be? it would be do not base any of your major decisions on anything a comedian says on a podcast or in any way. Just mistrust comedians. They're comedians. We lie. We people please. It's, you know, I, I love everything about your podcast, Callie, but I would any advice that any other comedians have given, I would take with a massive pinch of salt. <laughs> that was lucy porter so that's almost it for this week every episode i pick a thing as you know inspired by my guests that i am going to do and this week i'm going to bite the bullet and listen to harsh reality the story of miriam rivera um, actually i have to admit i've already started listening to it it's quite gripping and quite dark um, there's a link to it in the show notes and that is it for this week thank you so much as always for listening please do remember to rate review and recommend the show we will be back in your feed next thursday as always when i'll be talking to not one but two QI elves. God knows what the, the algorithms think of us. But we're I all think... on CIA watch lists and things, I reckon. Yeah. Some of the stuff we've searched. <laughs> Namaste, motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Mm-hmm.